to God today. And those things are important and yet not nearly as important as what God says to us. And what he speaks is life and truth. And so I'm going to ask you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. We're going to look at verse 3 and 4. You can also go ahead, if you want to, and flip over to Mark chapter 1, because I'm going to hit that for just a few minutes. Um, it's always a struggle when you finish up a series, and I just finished up First Peter. I'm going to jump into Second Peter in the fall. and I have a plan for the summer of what I'm going to preach when I come back um, from vacation, but getting ready to head out to the Southern Baptist Convention, so... Pray for me and my family. We are going to hang out with Gary some out in St. Louis and uh, at the Southern Baptist Convention. But pray for a fruitful time out there, if you would. And then we're going to head on vacation to Kansas City, um, going to that exotic location of barbecue. And um, there's always that struggle of, I've got one Sunday. It's the drive-by sermon. What do you do, right? Because typically I camp out in a book for a while. And so what do you do with the drive-by sermon? So I looked at the book of Mark and I've been studying through the book of Mark and um, I know I'm going to spend some time there this summer. I thought, well, I'll just do something to kick that off and uh, we'll jump into Mark chapter one. And instead, the Lord led me right after I finished writing that sermon um, to throw that aside and come to Second Corinthians chapter 11, because I've been concerned about this. And the word the apostle uses here is afraid in my own life. And in the lives of people around me and in what I hear and what I see in our Christian culture and the culture of Christians speaking into the world and Christians living in the world for quite some time and have had a hard time kind of putting it into words. And, um, and this passage, I think, puts it into words quite, quite well. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 says this, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning... Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I'm afraid. I'm concerned. I'm worried. I am burdened that my mind, my thoughts can be led astray. The word led astray there means corrupted from a pure, sincere devotion to Christ. Another way of putting this in another translation would say, I am concerned that the serpent who deceived Eve by his plans and cunning would lead your minds to corruption away from a singular devotion to Jesus. You see, we live in a world where so much competes for our attention and devotion. It was a satire, a satirical article that was written by a Christian magazine, Christian satire magazine, if that's possible, Christians and satire. But it was written by a Christian satire magazine. And this morning I was lighting the candles to get ready for the Lord's Supper because that's when we light candles. And uh, I lit the candle and it wouldn't light, but a whole plume of smoke came up and I made the joke, we should pull out the fog machine. Um, And... uh, There was an article that was written a couple of months ago, and it said, The Holy Spirit, unable to move through the worship service because the fog machine broke. Um, There's nothing wrong with the fog machine. There's nothing wrong with candles. There's nothing wrong with lights and flashing lights. There's nothing wrong with loud music. There's nothing wrong with an organ. There's nothing wrong with um, guitars. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. Uh, Could it be, though, that we've overcomplicated what it is to come to worship? I don't know about you, but there, there wasn't a better moment. I mean, the choir singing was fantastic. It was impactful. The visuals were amazing. Um, 
you know, great time of worship, singing. I mean, I, it gets for me, it gets no better than singing with my church family when I survey the wondrous cross. It doesn't get much better than that. That last verse of, of that hymn just smacks me in the face every time. To the band leading us, all of that's great to the communion around the Lord's table. But I don't know that it gets better than brothers and sisters in Christ gathering around two men in our congregation and praying for healing and just simply trusting Jesus to do something only he can do. Could it be that we have overcomplicated this whole thing? Because in this world where so much competes for our attention and devotion, on top of all of that, the obvious wrong things that compete for our hearts, compete for our devotion, on top of that, so much of what Christianity offers us competes for its place. It's like bumper cars bumping into each other, competing for the same spot with Jesus. I mean, we've got everything from Christian politics to Christian causes to Christian ministries to Christian values to Christian this to Christian books to Christian music to. And I'm not saying any of those things are bad. In fact, some of them are needed at various times. What I'm saying is none of those things are Jesus. And could it be that we too often substitute Jesus out of our lives and substitute a whole bunch of the Christian things into our lives and think we're going to be okay? Could it be that. Those things aren't God's design and that so many of those things can distract us from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ that we're called to. So as this summer is kicking off for us, what I want to call you to today, I want to call you to this test of your life, call you to this test of your heart, call you to this test of your devotion. Is it sincere and purely, sincerely and purely focused on Jesus? Another way of putting this would be, Is it singularly on Jesus? Is the devotion of your life, is the value of your life, is the treasure of your life Jesus? Simply and singularly Jesus. Because there's a warning here in this passage. He gives us a a warning for our minds and our hearts. And that warning is, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray. The warning is very simple. The enemy is after your minds. The enemy is after your thoughts. The enemy is after your emotions. The enemy is after what goes on in here. The enemy cannot, if you're a child of God, steal your soul. And so he attacks you in the mind. He did the same thing with Eve. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. Nothing could change that. So instead, he went after, well, do you actually believe what God has told you? He actually goes after their minds and he led their minds astray, which led their hearts astray. So the warning for us is, if your, heart, your mind is led astray, your heart will go with it. And this is what he says. The Apostle Paul says here in verse 3 is this is the way the enemy works. This is his strategy. It always has been his strategy from the first time he shows up in the Bible in chapter 3 of Genesis going to Eve. He comes and he takes God's promises and God's word and he corrupts it. That's the let astray. He corrupts what is supposed to be planted in their minds. The first thing he does is he adds to what God has said. Remember, God said, here's the garden. Here's every tree in the garden. It's good for you to eat of any tree in the garden, but not that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. The day you eat from that tree, you will surely die. 
And Satan comes to the tree. First of all, just realize he hangs out at the tree, but it seems like Eve is already hanging out at the tree. She's not necessarily fleeing from the temptation of doing the wrong thing. Okay. And he comes to Eve and he says, Did God really say not to eat of any tree in the garden? See what he did there? He called into question not what God actually said. He actually added to it. God had not said she couldn't eat from any tree in the garden, just that one tree. So what is he doing? He's saying, does God really care about you? Look at all this good fruit all around here, and God's keeping you from enjoying all of the good stuff. What he's really calling into question in her her mind is, can I trust that God has my best at heart? Can I trust that God is devoted to my best? The enemy calls into question whether our devotion to Christ is actually going to produce what God says it's going to produce. Is it enough to be a part of the kingdom that's coming? A kingdom that you're going to get in the end? I mean, you know that being a part of that kingdom means you don't get some of the stuff now. Didn't God say that if you do anything wrong, you're out? He calls into question all kinds of the promises of God. And he calls into question our identity. He gets into our minds and he, he twists and corrupts and leads us astray. The second way he does it is he subtracts or denies the truth of what God has said. To Eve, he said, you will not surely die. Well, she might not have died that day, but she was on the slow track to death. Everything began to die that day. So he might say to us, you know, you can bank on grace. He says he'll forgive you. It's not a big deal. The fact that you just constantly pursue your own security and your own desires, everybody does that. Not a big deal. God will forgive you. And then he'll come back around and say, God won't forgive you. He's not really trustworthy. God can't forgive you for that. So he will corrupt and lead us astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ by calling into question God's word, the truth of his word, and God's promises, and the value of God's promises. That's our warning for today. You see, this is something I've learned in my life, and I think this is very true. For the believer in Christ, Satan does not need for you to reject Jesus in order to win in your life. He doesn't need you to take a giant leap from I love Jesus to I hate Jesus. He doesn't need you to do that. He just wants you to take baby steps away from treasuring Jesus as your all in all. That's it. He All he needs to do in your life to win is to get your desire to switch from Jesus to other things. He just needs you to desire other things more than Jesus. That's it. He doesn't need you to deny Jesus. Just don't desire Him so much. Don't be so devoted. Have other competing passions. And He wins. So He goes after our minds. The test for us today is this. It's right there in the passage. That our thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The test. Is Christ the sincere and pure treasure of your heart? Is He singularly your treasure? Are you singularly devoted to Him? What is devotion? It's a singular dedication. You have one dedication. 
Christ. What is sincerity? It's a singular direction. No other thing will compete here. I've got one point, one purpose. What is purity? It's a singular definition. I find my purity. I find my identity in Jesus. Nothing else will take that away. Singular. I look at my life. It's lots of competition. Lots of competition for my devotion. So I want to ask us this question, and I I think it's a fair question for each of us. Is the whole of our hope and our identity, our future, our kingdom, simply Jesus? And if not, if we're competing, have other competing lovers, other competing devotions, if those things are competing and sometimes winning, if our minds go to the competition and not to Jesus, why? I think one reason is we've become maybe a little too familiar with Jesus. I think drawing close to Jesus is good. I think getting to know Jesus more and more, don't get me wrong, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Knowing Jesus is the source of life. So that's not at, at, at issue here. But sometimes we become too familiar with the amazing and it doesn't look quite so amazing anymore. So, gentlemen, how many of you are married? How many of you remember when you fell in love with your wife? Wow, you need to work on that. <laughs> Let's try that again. How, <laughs> your wife is sitting right next to you. Let's try that again. How many of you remember when you fell in love with your wife? I remember. Okay. Let's put it this way. I think that just proved my point. When I met Joanie, I wasn't that impressed. I know that's shocking to most of you. She wasn't impressed with me either. Not so shocking, right? I remember the moment I fell in love with her. I remember when love took my heart to devotion to her. That there would be her and none other. Guys, you remember that? Her and none other. I mean, I could have written... I wrote poems about her, right? I read a poem that I wrote about her at our wedding. Like, I'm winning here, right? I mean, I could have written songs. Some of you did probably write songs about her, right? And you, you looked at her and you said, she's amazing. I want to spend my life with her. I want to have babies with her. I want to do everything with her. I don't want to do any of that stuff with anybody else. I want her. Nothing could compete with her. She was amazing, right? Remember? Guys, this is the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Put your arm around her right now and tell her, yeah, I remember that. So when was the last time you wrote a poem? When was the last time you wrote a song? When was the last time you heard the song on the radio and you went, oh, she's amazing? Become very familiar Sometimes devotion flies out the window. That singular devotion starts to wane a little bit because it turns from she's amazing to if only she would, if only she would, if only she would. I mean, am I that far off base here, guys? From being, if we're being honest? 
So when was the last time you were amazed by Jesus? You woke up this morning, folks. You breathed in air. You live on a planet that is held together by the power of His Word. And you probably complained about the humidity like I did. You understand what I'm saying here? A singular devotion to Jesus will change the way we think. It will not allow us to be corrupted into thinking that God doesn't have our best at heart or that He's not capable of doing what He says He's going to do. A singular devotion to Jesus understands just how amazing He is and realizes that all of those other things, even the good things, aren't Jesus. They aren't Jesus. If you look at verse 4, he just kind of unpacks that a little bit more. He says, If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. This is what ends up happening when our minds are corrupted into thinking that God isn't who He says He is and we forget how amazing Jesus is. We forget that the Gospel is the Gospel of Jesus. And so we begin to grab on to anything that puts the label Christian. Any person who puts the label Christian on themselves. Any movement that puts the label Christian on itself. Any book, any music that says Christian. Without testing the spirits, without judging by fruits, without looking at the Gospel... There are churches in Powhatan County today who will gather together. They call themselves churches and they call themselves Christians and yet they believe that um, Jesus is just another God among gods. They will call themselves Christian. There are churches who will say they will gather and call themselves Christians in Powhatan County today who will say that you can become a God. And they will call themselves Christian. Should we be careful with the label? And understand that Christian isn't what we hold to. Jesus is. Let Jesus be the test. Let Jesus be the litmus test for what is true. That means Jesus has to be greater than all of these other things, right? That means we have to actually believe that Jesus is greater than all of this other stuff. Jesus is greater than, wait for it, Jesus is greater than your family. Jesus is greater than your church. Jesus is greater than your political party. Jesus is greater than your nation. The stones didn't start flying, I'm glad. Jesus is greater than your kingdom. Jesus is greater than your comfort. Jesus is greater than your security. Jesus is greater than your retirement fund. Jesus is greater than your station in life. Jesus is greater than what people think about you. So what I'm really saying is Jesus is greater than you are. The first step, A.W. Pink says, the first step toward a daily following of Christ is the denying of self. We as the people of God need to be the ones who will stand and say, Jesus is greater than we are. 
individually and collectively, (laughs) Jesus is greater. So I ask you, no matter who you are, no matter what side of any aisle that you end up on, I ask you as a follower of Jesus, the decisions that you make every day, what you put out to the world, would they know, would the people around you know, everyone from your family, friends, to Facebook friends, to co-workers, would they know that you are singularly devoted to Jesus or would they think you were devoted to something else? Based on what they hear you say, based on what they see you post, based on what they see you do, would they know that you are singularly devoted to Jesus? I think we get that right. A lot of stuff changes. I sat down with a group of third graders this week, and as they left the uh, classroom at Pocahontas Elementary School, I had them chanting quietly because this testing was still going on. As they were walking down the hall, they were chanting to each other, Change the world. Change the world. Change the world. Change the world. I told them it was simple to start with that. It was looking at the person next to them and realizing that person's more important than you are. If that's true, if you could look at the person sitting next to you right now and say, in Christ, that person is more important than I am. I shouldn't think too highly of myself, but that person is more important than I am. I ask you, if that person is more important than you, how much more important than you is Jesus? See how that changes the world. I think a lot of things change. Because Jesus doesn't promise us physical security brought by promises of kings and politicians or nations. Instead, he brings in a kingdom and promises us a place in that kingdom. He doesn't promise us prosperity in the world's eyes. He promises us instead that he will provide for our needs as we trust him. Jesus doesn't promise us position and exaltation in this world. He doesn't promise you that people are going to look at you and think that you're great. Instead, he promises that one day everyone will look at him as great. Jesus doesn't demand perfection from you. Jesus accomplished perfection for you. He demands repentance and faith. Flip over to Mark chapter 1 just for a couple of seconds. So I want you to see this. Verse 1, I want you to see in verse 15. In the middle of verses 1 and verses 14 and 15, right? The end of 14 into 15, Jesus is being introduced onto the scene in his earthly ministry. And in that passage, you see that Jesus is greater than the messenger John the Baptist. Jesus is greater than the method that John the Baptist would use. John the Baptist would baptize for repentance and forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist himself said, I baptize you with water. He baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. I'm not worthy to fix his sandals and make sure his shoes get tied. Okay? So he's better than the messenger. He's greater than the method. He's greater than the enemy. He's led out to be tempted. He's greater than your isolation. He's out in the wilderness. He's mightier than anyone and anything. In fact, in verse 11, we're told that at his baptism, God the Father himself speaks and says, This is my beloved Son. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. 
And then, verse 1, I want you to see it. What does it say? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And verse 14 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying, this is what he was proclaiming as he proclaimed the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What is he saying here in the simplest terms? First, the gospel is Jesus. He is the gospel. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the son of God. He's the one who is with us. Jesus is the gospel. There is no good news outside of Jesus. If anybody's offering you anything that sounds like good news and it is not Jesus, it's not good news. It's counterfeit. If anybody offers you good news for your life and it is not Jesus, it will pass away. Which should drive us to a singular devotion to Jesus because He is the true good news. Not only is the gospel Jesus, Jesus is the gospel. He says that He started to speak the gospel and He calls people to repentance. And what did He say? I'm here. The gospel's here. The kingdom is here. He is the good news for today and He is the good news for the future because the kingdom has arrived in Jesus. So what Jesus promises us is not a better life or to get better. He promises us himself, all of himself. And if we were to treasure him and be singularly devoted to him, our lives would be dramatically changed and our world would see us proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus, not just how great our faith is, but how great the one in whom our faith is. How great is Jesus? And how great does Jesus appear in your life to the people around you? Harry Ironside said, no one ever lost out by excessive devotion to Christ. You can't lose if you're excessively devoted to Jesus. A.W. Pink said, as Christ has a gospel, Satan has a gospel too. Satan's gospel is a clever counterfeit of the former, of Jesus' gospel. So closely does the gospel of Satan resemble that which is parodies that multitudes of the unsaved are being led astray by it. See, Satan doesn't need you to take the giant leap of, I hate Jesus. He just needs you to not be devoted. To not treasure Jesus as much as you treasure other things. So as I close today, I want to call us as the people of God to this that this summer, the summer of 2016 for Old Powhatan Baptist Church would be a summer of singular devotion. If you are going to the beach, that you would live your life at the beach singularly devoted to Jesus. That you would find ways to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. If you're going to be with your family around the pool, you would find ways to be singularly devoted to Jesus. Proclaim the excellencies of Jesus to every person you meet. If you're, if you're going to be at the Y, that you would proclaim the excellencies of Jesus and be singularly devoted. If you're going to spend time at a family reunion, that you would be singularly devoted to Jesus. If you're ministering at Vacation Bible School, it would not just be about the great time the kids are having, but you would be singularly devoted to Jesus and you would be calling them to a singular devotion to Jesus.
Hey, let's not complicate this. Let's simply, sincerely devote ourselves to Jesus. The good news of the gospel is this. God was so devoted to saving you and me that he did not give us second best. The singular devotion in God's redemption plan is so obvious that he sent Jesus to accomplish the work. Now he calls us to trust that same Jesus. So as John Piper says, consider Jesus, know Jesus, learn what kind of person it is you say you trust and love and worship. Soak in the shadow of Jesus. Saturate your soul with the ways of Jesus. Watch him, listen to him, stand in awe of him. Let him overwhelm you with the way he is. Be overwhelmed by Jesus. It might just drive you to write a song about him. It might just drive you to write a poem about him. But at the very least, it will drive you to tell somebody about him. And if you're here today and no one has ever told you about how great Jesus is, let me be the one who does it. Jesus is so great that he is God in flesh. Jesus has been and always will be. He's eternal. He's eternally perfect. He's eternally mighty. He, by his very word, spoke the whole universe into being. And in doing so, he made humanity as the pinnacle of his creation. Jesus is the spoken word of God that created all things and holds all things together. And then Jesus, though we turned our backs on God who created us, Jesus came to redeem us. Jesus is not only the spoken word that creates us and holds us together, he's also the word made flesh who came to bring us back to God. And as he came and he dwelt among us, we were able to see his glory and his glory is full of grace and truth. And so he speaks the truth of who we should be. And yet he also gives the grace to make us into the people we should be. And he did that fully and finally by giving himself in our place. Because we had turned our back on God and we had committed treason against God who made us. All of God's wrath against all of that evil was poured out on Jesus. He took our place. We deserved it and he took it. And as he took all of that wrath on himself, taking our place, we call it the great switcheroo. Those who would place their faith in Jesus fully and finally get all of his righteousness. He took all of our sin. We get all of his righteousness. He didn't stay dead. The third day, he rose again. It's as if God wrote the check to, to save us by the blood of Jesus. And on the third day, when Jesus rose, the check cleared. And we now belong to Him. Anyone who has repented of their sins, turned from their sins, turned from themselves in their own way, no matter if you're trying to do everything right or you're just doing everything wrong, turning from your own way to Jesus who is the only way. All by faith. I want to call you to that repentance and faith today. I want to call all of us to that same good news of the gospel because the gospel is Jesus and Jesus is the gospel. And if you're here today and that's good news to you for the first time, there are tons of people here who would love to talk to you about what it is to believe in Jesus. Would you raise your hand if you're willing to talk to someone about 
what it is to believe in Jesus, you can talk to any of these people. They would love a chance to tell you how great Jesus is. Now, folks, for the rest of us, you just raised your hand that you would be willing to tell somebody how great Jesus is. What about when you walk out those doors? Are you just as willing? Take one of these cards, invite somebody to church, share the gospel with them, do something this week that would proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. We're going to sing together as we close. It's going to be a time of commitment, a time of response. The front is always open for you to come pray when we sing like this. 